Joshua is British and lives in London. A quick glance at his Facebook page will tell you he's into athletics and can totally rock a pair of sunglasses. He's also black, and I point this out because it's relevant to the story. You see, a couple of weeks ago, Joshua's name was in the news for a rather bizarre reason. A passport photo. Joshua wanted to renew his passport, so he filled out a form and got his picture taken. I'm looking at it right now. It's got that typical official photo look. Stern face, mouth closed, no teeth showing. So when Joshua went online to submit his photo, along with the rest of the form, he was expecting it to go through without a hitch. But then... The website denied the application, saying his mouth was open in the picture. It clearly isn't. But the paperwork had been rejected, not by a human working in the passport office, but by a machine. Joshua tried to reply to this automated system. He wrote, My mouth is closed. I just have big lips. When Joshua shared his story online, it spread rather quickly, with some accusing the passport office and its technology of being racist. So why would artificial intelligence have trouble processing the photo of a black man? And can a machine, a computer program, really be racist? I'm Anissa Subedar and you're listening to the BBC Trending Podcast, where each week we take an in-depth look into the world of social media. With me today is Robert Elliott Smith, an American computer scientist who spent much of his career thinking about algorithms and artificial intelligence. He's written a book titled Rage Inside the Machine, where he argues not only that algorithms are prejudiced, but also that because of them, the internet is turning many of us into bigots. It's a challenge to the idea of some techno-optimists who've argued that algorithms can make fairer judgments and help us transcend our human prejudices. But Robert says the opposite view is backed up by his research. While computers might run automatically, they have to start somewhere. And they are, of course, programmed by humans who can embed their own biases into code. Robert says his ideas were influenced by his own personal journey. He was born in Birmingham, Alabama in the early 1960s and it was there that he saw firsthand the effects of segregation. Racism was so commonplace that it wasn't even questionable when I was a child. The N-word would be used quite broadly. Jokes would be told that when I recall them now, it censures down my spine. And that's the culture I grew up in, where racism was just ubiquitous and part of the culture. I was a bullied kid. I was kind of bookish. And one day I got pushed down by some bullies. And this was after the black kids had come to my school. Black kids were shipped in from essentially a ghetto at the end of the runway. And I was sent to the back of the line, back of the lunch line, because I had been pushed down by these bullies. And a black girl said to me, you always go around looking at your feet. If you don't hold your head up, you're going to be beat down your whole life. It still touches me every single time I it's say it. It's a valuable it. life lesson. And it was. It changed my life. And the, the whole realization that those kids, 
they were not dangerous in the way that I would have thought they were based on my culture, and they were just like other kids. And I think that really was a life-changing experience. So I believe that actively discouraging segregation is absolutely important, and online it's very important now. So actively discouraging the online segregation that's going on is a big part of my mission in the book. The word algorithm is going to be something that we're going to talk and you're going to hear a lot of during the duration of this program. So are you able to explain in very simple terms what an algorithm is and how it works? An algorithm is simply a computerized step-by-step procedure. If you look at a recipe, right, a recipe consists of the ingredients list and then the way you do it. The way you do it part is an algorithm. So as an internet user, how do I identify an algorithm at work? Everything you're doing on a computer, period, is an algorithm at work. Everything. Every single thing. Okay. So let's take, for example, I put into a search engine, how to make a cupcake. First of all, there's been a lot of algorithmics going on in the background before you ever did that search. Google is basically taking in data from the internet through step-by-step algorithmic statistical procedures, identifying things that are about all sorts of topics, including cupcakes. And then they're indexing, effectively, all that data so that when a search term comes in, they look through the index and find the right entries, and then they return them to you. And that's all done as an algorithm. Now, the thing that's going on that most people probably don't know is that While you're using search engines and any part of the internet, there's all sorts of algorithms going on in casual ways. When you click on anything, your computer records that you've clicked on it and it's recorded and that information can be used against an index, etc. When you even slow down in scrolling, that can be recorded and used. So effectively, and here's the tricky thing, if you type in cupcake, you get something that is not only about that index, but it's also about hmm, is Anissa someone I can sell cupcakes of this kind to? And then it offers you advertising in that way. So there's an algorithm underneath it that's about commercial delivery. But when I type in cupcake, I might get a completely different set of advertising or political marketing or whatever because the algorithms that are always running in our lives are identifying you and I as different people who can be targeted differently. It's not just search engines All the apps running on your phone and your favourite social media platforms, they all rely on algorithms. And all the major social networks use them to target you with content, including advertising. Algorithms are literally everywhere online. And Robert says that these algorithms, in their very nature, are biased. The reason I say algorithms are prejudiced is because the nature of prejudging is to essentially identify simplified features of a complex thing and then draw generalizations about them. So algorithms prejudge, and here's how it works. A video sharing website like YouTube will run on an algorithm to decide which videos to recommend to you, and it draws conclusions based, among other things, on the videos you and people like you have watched before. It prejudges and generalises on a huge range of factors. But what exactly is wrong with that? I asked Robert for an example. The unprofessional hair controversy. A while ago, a journalist typed into Google unprofessional hair and found that all the pictures that returned in the image search were of black women, not men and not white people black women. 
why now. But also, if you type into the search bar "professional hair" and go to images, you get a whole host of photos of white women. And beautiful locks. One way to interpret that results would be in this indexing process we've talked about. The majority of things that they found for unprofessional hair are pictures of black women. Now, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe people are labeling unprofessional hair as black women's natural hair. I think what's happening is that in image recognition, seeing color, shape, and texture are easy. And the color, shape, and texture of some styles of hair are easier to identify than others. And because of this, these kind of simplifying effects. If you look at simplifying features like a person's color, and then use it to make distinctions like is this person professional or not, you're doing the activity that is actually racist. But algorithms, because they are simple-minded, they're very simple in what they can look at: shape, texture, color. They will do this sort of thing. It's inevitable. Okay, so this needs a little bit of explaining. How does an algorithm lead us from a search for unprofessional hair to results showing mostly black women? Like Robert says, it's not that many people are making websites that explicitly spread this sweeping generalization that black women are unprofessional. Of course, some sites like that exist, but they're not super popular, and they're not the ones that you would expect to see at the top of Google search rankings. But even those few websites or social media posts out there which do equate unprofessional hair with black women can tip the scales. Remember, the algorithm is a simple, blunt instrument. It sees a few examples of so-called unprofessional hair, and it generalizes and prejudges. Based on attributes it saw in just a few photos, it will then go through millions of other images and decide which ones are similar to that small sample. It happened as a combination of the fact that somebody somewhere probably labeled some pictures as unprofessional that were pictures of a certain kind of hair. But the thing is, the algorithms that then tried to understand those pictures to generalize about what unprofessional are are very simplifying. It's the coupling of those two things, and that leads to an amplification. Of any biases that humans introduce, biases that humans introduce will be amplified by algorithms and then re-emphasized to us, which will further amplify them. Here's an interesting detail: the unprofessional hair bias was discovered in 2016 and was the subject of a whole bunch of news stories. Today, when you search for that phrase, well, the search will be individualized because of those algorithms. But you're likely to find that the images that pop up are still of black women. It's not that nothing changed, either with Google's algorithm or with the internet. But after the story came to light, there were lots of news stories illustrated with pictures of black women's natural hair and blog posts pointing out the algorithm's bias, and social media posts, many trying to upend the stereotype illustrated with the faces of, you've guessed it. Black women, and so the link between unprofessional hair and black women lives on in Google's image search, all because of algorithms. Up until now, we've talked about algorithms as being digitized and machinery and technology and computers, but at the heart of that, the origins of that. Are humans? The algorithms are not just devised by 
technology and equations and maths that devised by people. That's right. Do I think that there is a programmer culture of racism at the big five companies? I don't think so, but there is certainly underrepresentation of women and minorities in those groups. That's certainly true and it's something to be concerned about. But what I do believe is this. There's a great deal of belief that people can be quantified. And it's not just in the programmer culture. It's a historical set of beliefs. What's happened now is it's been automated. We all have an unconscious bias yes. that is going to dictate how operational we are and in, in functioning in our day-to-day roles, yes. whatever that may be. Now, that's all the more crucial when it comes to devising the technology that creates the algorithm that feeds the search engines. Exactly. You're absolutely right. I had someone ask, ask me to talk recently, don't people simplify and generalize? That was the kind of final question after my talk. And I said, absolutely, they do. You know, that's something that people do. But we have moral frameworks and ethical frameworks that we use to counter our tendency to simplify and generalize. And there are complex social frameworks that artificial intelligence isn't anywhere near duplicating. Just because you've met one person who behaves one way doesn't mean that all people are going to meet from their tribe behave that way. You know, that's a bad generalization that ethics prevents us from having. There's one arena, at least, where humans are well out in front of the machines. Our moral compass allows for subtlety and individual judgments. We can accept people, or not, as individuals, rather than always prejudging and generalizing in the way the algorithms do. Clearly, we don't always reach that high ideal, but it's within our grasps. The algorithms, on the other hand, can't perform those kind of moral calculations. But Robert goes further and says that the algorithm's lack of morality can have real-life consequences. Take something called predictive policing. A number of places have tried it out in the UK, the US, the Netherlands and China. Predictive policing is when you take data about different areas of, let's say, your region of the country, and you take data about the currents of crimes and the social unrest, density of people, incomes, etc. You take this data and you basically put it in a big algorithm. It comes back and says, oh, here's where we should send the police to be careful about knife crime, right? We should send them to this area. Now, inevitably, there's correlation and feedback loops that go on there that basically then target particular communities because effectively the whole assumption chain of basically what features you picked from the data, how you process them, what goals you were trying to accomplish that you put into the algorithm, all lead to a conclusion. And very often that conclusion is one that could have been made in a very profiling sort of way in the first place. The big data ends up just giving you back what you thought it would give you, which is effectively this community needs to be patrolled more for knife crime. That's predictive policing. Now, combine that in your mind with facial recognition. So you've got cameras everywhere recognizing people's faces. They're simultaneously bringing in data about crime. They're trying to make decisions about, oh, where, where should we send the cops now? Now, what those algorithms are doing in terms of facial recognition is they're looking at simplified features of the face, the color of your face, the shape of your nose, texture of your hair. That's all the algorithm can see. So what we're doing is we're basically saying, oh, let's make policing decisions based on that. They may be blunt and imperfect, but some people argue algorithms can spot patterns or identify trends that humans with their limited brains often miss. 
So I asked Robert, what if they actually work? What if they manage to bring crime down? Surely that's a benefit. One could say that it would save lives to simply imprison the poor because the poor, because they're poor, commit crimes. That's not a social solution. That's a simplified, generalized, dangerous solution. And let's face it, it's not that far from what some people think. Oh, let's just put them all in jail. That's no way to handle a real social issue. Algorithms are the engine of modern social media. The social media giants use computer programs to individualize content, to push you posts and adverts that are relevant to you. They do that to keep you engaged. In other words, staying on their site, scrolling through their content. And that way you'll see more adverts and they will make more money. But this individualization has some interesting and perhaps undesirable effects. Earlier, I was asking Robert about the algorithms that kick into gear when you search for something online. For instance, a cupcake recipe. The fact that it's identified my interest in cupcakes and your interest in cupcakes is different then can be used to segregate us effectively into different groups that are delivered different messages. And because of that, we're promoting social division. We all know this because your news feed that you get from Facebook, Twitter, whatever, I keep getting told the same thing that I already believe. I don't get contrasting views. In your filter bubble. In my filter. I I end up in a filter bubble. How am I, as a user, able to enact that change that you talk about when I am not in charge of my searches or the things that I click on? They're effectively fed to me. That's right. And they're tailor-made to me as an individual. Yeah. The things that our studies show that could be helpful, one, is increased connectivity is always good. Having more connections and more connections to more diverse people is always good. Now, what I'm telling people is this, is unblock and refriend people who you disagree with up to the extent that you can stand it. Open the door a little bit. Better to scroll past something you don't agree with rather than block off. And that's not just to make you more exposed to other opinions. It's to make the network more permeable to other opinions. The other thing I say is this, is these algorithms are very simple-minded and they're very driven by click-through and profit and things like that. So all they're really doing is reading the headlines and then shooting stuff out to you based on very keywordy, simple ways of looking at the headline, like something that says something negative about a political figure that you don't like. It will just send that straight to you. What you shouldn't do is then replicate that behavior by looking at the headline and sending it to other people. If you behave like an algorithm, you're just emphasizing what the algorithms are doing. So that's a suggestion for what we, as social media users, may be able to do to counter what Robert describes as online segregation. But what about the companies themselves? Google, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat and all the others – What could they do to address the problem? Algorithms are driven by value pursuit. They're trying to make somebody money. That value maximization approach has to be mitigated with other values, like the promotion of diversity of opinions, diversity of solution offerings, and diversity of people involved with one another. And the hopeful vision is this, is now that we're at this stage where we've reached the culmination of this quantification of people, 
maybe now is the time we can say people don't easily quantify. People can't be placed into simplified groups easily. People are complicated. They need to interact in a complicated way, and we need to accept that. We need to change our view of human beings and change our view of their interaction with technology. Robert, it's interesting the language that you use when you talk about an online segregation of people, given that you were witness to the Deep South in Alabama, where you grew up in Mm. Birmingham in the 60s and 70s, of real, physical, offline segregation. How do the two compare? I think if you think of the way they look, there are similarities. Uh, People divided into communities where they don't see one another at all. The next thing is you only hear one side of the story. We're only hearing our side of the story and enforcing our own views. And the second thing is is any time the two groups come together, there's anger and shouting down and, and ugliness. And what do we see online? If you try to stick your head up, you get shouted down in really ugly ways. All of that stuff looks a heck of a lot like what Alabama looked like when I was a kid. That was Robert Elliott Smith. He's got a book out right now called Rage Inside the Machine, The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All. Big thanks to him for that interview. Our production coordinator was Sarah Jackson, Marco Silva, our producer, and as ever, Mike Wendling, our editor. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard today, feel free to write to me. You can do that by emailing anisa, A-N-I-S-A, dot subedar, S-U-B-E-D-A-R, at bbc.co.uk. For more of our stories, come and find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for BBC Trending. And just before we go, here's another BBC World Service podcast that I've been listening to. I'm Kim Chakaneta, and I'm the host of The Conversation podcast from the BBC World Service. Oh boy, I'm overwhelmed with so much to say in such a short time. Some recent favourites include an episode on female roadies, these two incredible women who've just been touring the world with musicians and had some incredible stories to tell. It's a live show and sometimes things go wrong and tonight something's gone wrong. (laughs) I also found the episode on women living with schizophrenia incredibly powerful. She does not believe that there's such a thing as a mental illness. She still thinks that perhaps it was a demonic possession that happened to me. Another episode was about women who were standing up to street harassment. I'm sick of it. It's in front of my house. It's in my street. It's near my train station. It's all the time. And I've always had female flight attendants on my wish list and we finally got to speak to two women who had spent a lot of time up there. People just stormed the door because they had to get off the plane. They were so scared. That's the conversation from the BBC. World Service. Can't put price tag on these emotions. Search for the conversation wherever you found this podcast.